talking, honky talking, honey baby. We'll go honky talking around this town. Tom Hiddleston as Hank Williams in that clip from I Saw the Light, a biopic about the iconic country singer who gave the world hits like Honky Tonkin and I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, and who, like so many iconic musicians before him, died too soon at the age of 29. I Saw the Light opens in Chicago this weekend, and I had a chance to sit down with Hiddleston and the writer-director of I Saw the Light, Mark Abraham. We had a lovely chat about accuracy in biopics, how they approached a key performance scene in the movie. Let's go ahead and hear a bit from Hiddleston explaining his way into the character of Hank Williams. It always varies, whatever that way in is. Sometimes it's a, a gut feeling, sometimes it's a particular scene, sometimes it's a piece of music, sometimes it's an image. Um, could be a painting, you know. Um, I made a film with Guillermo del Toro called Crimson Peak and my whole character was, I sort of, I found the idea for it from um, the painting uh, Wanderer Above a Sea of Fog, a Caspar David Friedrich painting. It's Anyway, it, that, it, I took that whole characterization from one painting, really. And with Hank, um, there were so many ways in. Uh, and one of them was through the music itself. And the other was through, through audio recordings that I could find. Specifically, an album called The Lost Concerts, where he does these comedy bits between sets. Mm. And also the Luke the Drifter recordings for MGM, which were his poems he released under a pseudonym. But actually, our, my conversations with Mark was my way in. We talked extensively about what we thought, what we thought the film was about, and in our minds, an exploration of the life of Hank Williams is really a portrait of the artist as a young man, and the pressures on a young man as he struggles to maintain his artistic integrity in the face of increasing commercial demand. And secondarily, a young man who is drawn to women and relationships with women and how complex and volatile those relationships were, yeah. specifically with his first wife. So, so you know, on the face of it, I'm stepping into the, these huge, big boots of Hank Williams. But actually, after speaking with Mark, I was playing a man and playing an artist and playing a husband um, who then became a father. And those things are much easier to get inside yeah. than uh, any any legendary silhouette. Mm. Mark, you okay. usually only hear accuracy brought up with biopics when people are picking apart the things a movie didn't get right after the fact. But you said accuracy was important to you. You didn't want to manipulate events or make up scenes to illustrate Hank Williams' talent. I'm curious if you think that accuracy is important with all true stories or just this true story in particular? Hmm, good question. I, it's hard for me to make a, a blanket statement about accuracy. I think it depends on the general overall initial intent. I think if you want to make a film that is more oblique or is a film that's an interpretation of someone's life, you could make up everything. You could decide to make up, you know, what Thomas Jefferson was thinking about for 40 years when he built Monticello. Because what we tried to do with the film was to show not what people expected, which was this is where he was born. This is who taught him how to play the guitar. This is why he's such a great you – know, that we threw out the window. And But we did want to, and I certainly wanted to at least give people a sense of the time frame, and I, I didn't want to be 
uh, psychologically mm-hmm. analyzing the guy. So for me, the accuracy was important. Mm-hmm. I, but I think it, it all depends on throughout literature. There's been all kinds of approaches, and I would be, and many of them I love that have nothing to do with the truth. Yeah. Tom, what about you? How important is accuracy when it comes to a performance, whether you're watching documentaries about the person you're playing or you've seen whatever footage or whatever you can read about them? I have a feeling that it might restrict you a little bit. You might feel a little bit too beholden uh, to what you saw, and maybe you can't make it your own. Does that ever happen? Um, well, in this case, in the case of Hank, I, I had a responsibility to to him and his legacy and his family and the enduring power of those songs and what he means to people. And so there's a responsibility to be precise, mm-hmm. to tell his truth as opposed to mine. But there is a, a degree of freedom because, especially in a cinema portrayal, my interest, and I hope the interest of the audience, is not in the facts you can read about in a book mm-hmm. or look up on the internet. The interest is in the interpretation. And after a certain point, you know, we know that Hank Williams made his debut on the Grand Old Opry uh, at the Ryman in Nashville, and he sang Love Sick Blues, and everybody went bananas. And that scene is in this movie. Mm-hmm. But we don't know what the conversations were that Hank and Audrey had before they turned the lights out yeah. in, in bed at night. And, and, and those conversations become a leap of interpretation and imagination. And that, as an actor, is where, is where you have the freedom because then you find, you find the common ground between yourself and the character, which I hope expresses the common ground between the audience and the icon. I think you might have a little bronco riding tonight. Is he? Says okay. Well, I look forward to that event. You should. Especially since you're not drinking. Oh, now, darling, that's on cold for. Well, then come on and climb up, cowboy. Oh, oh, my back. It's gone again, baby. All right. I really noticed your posture on stage. It's hunched a little bit like someone who might be suffering from chronic back problems, as Hank did, but also like a performer who's kind of planted himself in front of the mic and he's owning it and yeah. you're not going to budge him. Was that something you, you considered just the, the physicality of <clears throat> when you're performing as Hank? Well, I, there are a few um, uh, extant uh, video clips of Hank and he had that. He had that magnetism on stage. You couldn't... Rodney Crowell, who was my mm-hmm. sort of music tutor, called it the snake. Um, that he would transfix the audience in a way with this stare, this you know, which people talked about, and and would attest to his extraordinary presence on stage. I mean, a real rock star. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then the the hunch really came from the, you know the fact that Mark and I talked about how interesting it was that this man had spina bifida, that it was undiagnosed, and there was there wasn't much compassion for it. You know, he was a man who was expected to get on the road and sell his records. And and yet, as a performer, he has an instinctive rhythm that ex- expresses itself physically. So his knees would sway and his head would bob. Um, and he's got to hold that guitar for yeah. <laughs> long. So um, the performance aspect of it, I enjoyed. And I was surprised, so very surprised to find that once I stood on that stage and stood in that, spotlight 
that it was actually a very similar feeling to being a stage actor. Really? Um, you know, I'm some, I trained as a theatre actor before I did any film. Um, and, and, and I came up through the theatre in London. And the feeling of, of the chemistry between, between a performer and an audience was reassuring and familiar to me mm-hmm. once, I, once I was on that stage as Hank. Mark, Tom alluded to this, but how much of that type of physicality that he's bringing to the performance, how much of that was something you guys discussed? You know, the, the physicality was is something that we discussed, but what we really talked about was what were we trying to say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's this movie about? Yeah. And we knew we were going to be flying a little bit into some headwind because not only is there a, is Hank a titan, isn't he's on Mount Olympus, he's Zeus in country music yeah. and in American folk music, he has he holds such a uh, you know a high place. So what we did is we we talked about what we were trying to say, and as Tom said so eloquently just now, in my opinion, that uh, a portrait of an artist is a young man. It's a film about show business. It's it's not a film that's trying to say these are the things uh, that you can already Google about mm-hmm. Hank Williams. It's trying to show you that show business brings its own set of of unique problems. Not that everybody does them. So what we did is we talked about what it was about. We, we talked about the pressures. We talked about how influential men are in women's lives or women are in men's lives and how any artist, Keats, Shelley, Shakespeare, these relationships. And then let Tom, as a performer, as a, 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 a deeply uh, curious man and artist, mm-hmm. I let him interpret that. And then he it becomes his, not mine or ours it's his then and then once it's his he's up there doing what he's doing and then it comes back to being ours yeah and then he's asking me and i'm giving him my feedback and it's a very very collaborative experience if you're lucky and to me that's the job and and so if he was up there he i might say you know uh I need, I'm feeling like that's too much or that's taking over a little bit. Or he might come to me and say, what do you think? You know, and then it's just I couldn't tell you during it that we ever mm-hmm. had any specific conversations. It was just something that became his and, he, and that he wanted to become mm-hmm. and he enjoyed. Yeah, that Opry scene that was mentioned earlier, I really think that's the standout performance scene in the movie, maybe the standout scene in the movie. I'll save my reasons why, but I'm just curious, what was your approach to that scene, which really was the pivotal moment for him in his professional life and his personal life? A lot of the decisions that I made when I was writing the script and decided to make the movie were based upon things I didn't want to see, for instance. I really struggle with scenes in performances like that where the audience is made to be a big part of it, where the filmmaker shows you the audience to let you know how excited everybody is and how brilliant this person is. First of all, in those days, there wasn't that kind of, you know, nobody was holding up lighters. Uh, Second of all, you're talking about crowds that are not performers. (laughs) So to me, what that film was about, what I wanted to do was I really wanted to concentrate on Hank. And I wanted... Hank's performance to have the power and then on Hank's face that you could see how important it was to him and you could see the success. You didn't need to see Mm -hmm. people screaming and shouting. Not that they didn't do some of that, but it was more about what Hank and hence Tom. And there's also was a lot of lore about that, that there were six 
uh, supposedly six encores. That's been written many times. But from every bit of information, and I did voluminous amounts of research, the, they didn't have encores yeah. at, the, at the Opry. Well, what you were going for worked, because certainly that's what I noticed, the lack of an audience and really the focus on the joy in the performance mm. of Hank Williams. I mean, this is really his moment. The audience in some ways there is secondary probably to him. And that really is, Tom, where we see throughout the whole movie. That's where he does get to express some joy. It, it's kind of some relief when he's on stage. What are your recollections of shooting that sequence? Well, I, I, it, I knew <laughs> approaching it that it was a kind of... Um, it was the 100-meter final. It was, the, it was Mount Everest. It was a huge moment that I had to get right. And I did a lot of work on the music. I mean, so much work on the music, on the singing and on, on the playing, because I didn't want in the shooting of it to be thinking about that. I wanted those aspects to be unconscious, um, that I could really concentrate on communicating the intensity of what he was feeling in that moment, which was so many things. Because I think up until that point in his life, the Opry had been the dream. It had been the goal. That's all he wanted was to, was to get up on that stage and be somebody. And, and all that stuff that's around that scene is true, which is he, he went and recorded Lovesick Blues with a different band that weren't his regular guys. And Jerry... Bird. Bird, Jerry Bird was up there, and and they all thought that even Fred Rose. They all decided that Lovesick Blues was a loser. It was it was just not gonna. It, you know, it was a bit that he sang it out of meter and he held on to the notes for too long, and it was a cover of something someone else had written. And did we have to put this down? And he went, No, trust me. When I when I'm in on the Louisiana Hayride, people go bananas for this thing. And that was the song he sang. And in the words of Mel Kilgore, that's when the women stood up and threw their babies in the air. <laughs> um, and, and in a way, that scene was a culmination, I hope, in my performance of, of as you say, and, and thank you for saying it, of, of his joy at, at making it, yeah. at being there, at sticking to his guns, at staying true to himself. And... And seeing that resonate on in the auditorium that he'd always dreamed of performing yeah. in, um, and the great thing about it is, as an acting question, was I didn't have to feel, I didn't have to add much to my own joy. It was like my joy at performing the song could be expressed as Hanks. Yeah. Which I loved. Yeah. After the fact, not while I was watching it, but I did think about your Adam character in the. Jarmusch film, Only Lovers Left right. Alive, where you're playing a musician, but a very different one in the sense yeah. that he's a guy who craves solitude and yeah. isolation. And as you've said in Hank's relationships with his the women in his life, he he couldn't live a, a, an isolated life. It, no. it was kind of one of his tragic flaws, I guess, that he was always drawn back to these people, no matter how self-destructive. And certainly... Adam doesn't perform for people. That's not what his music's about. No. And Hank, of course, as we've said, was only really alive when he's on stage. But do you carry anything over from performance to performance like that from other films, kind of working on another side of something you've done? You know, it's so interesting about you'd made, made the link, which so I have to tell you now is that in uh, uh, the character in Jarmusch's film is called Adam. Mm -hmm. And in Adam's bedroom in Detroit, he has a wall of heroes of, of portra remember, portraits yeah. of people who he thinks has contributed significantly to the human race. Isaac Newton is up there. Christopher Marlowe is mm -hmm. up there. Nikola Tesla. 
Iggy Pop, Rodney Dangerfield, a few Jarmusch in-jokes. Hank Williams is up there. Yeah, huh. I didn't see that. And I remember pointing that out to Jim, and I was like, huh, Hank Williams is up there. And he went, yeah, man, greatest American poet. Wow. And so there is a link. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also an interesting question, because the, the tension Adam has in Only Love is Left Alive is that he makes this music, and he still gets it out there. He doesn't want credit for it, but he needs the reflection. Hmm. And he needs a reflection in a way that his partner... Eve, as played by Tilda Swinton, she doesn't need it anymore. So there is an aspect of like, to what extent or what value does a piece of art contain if it exists in isolation? Mm -hmm. Is that you need to you need the reflection back from the audience? That's part of what makes a piece of art a piece of art. Yeah, um, and um, it's something that Adam wrestles with, as you know. Because obviously his identity as a vampire can't be revealed. It can't <laughs> well, be reflected either. Or reflected, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the kind of the joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, Hank, it, what's the tension in Hank is interesting because as it relates to that question, because he wanted that reflection so badly as a validation for who he was. And then when it came to him, it wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. and, and actually his success became isolating, I think. In the words of his friend Danny Dill, um, he spent his life wanting to get up there and be somebody, and then he got up there and he found there wasn't anything there. Yeah, indeed, as we get through the film, we see him more and more alone. Yeah. That's true. And at the end of his life, more or less as well, sadly. We'll close here, kind of back where we started talking about biopics a little bit. I read, Mark, that you were pretty obsessed with watching a lot of films that were about musicians and I was as a kid I watched the Buddy Holly story constantly I loved Gary Busey I loved that film and also I know you're a fan of all that jazz which is yeah. not really about a musician but certainly as a biopic um, more like the the kind you were talking about initially where it's all about interpretation and not really about the facts at all but just looking through those films that you watched maybe as kind of preparation or or some research what what did you learn what did you take away that you either wanted to make sure you got right or make sure you didn't do wrong well, I, the films that really inspired me were films of Bob Fosse, mm. uh, as you said, All That Jazz, and Lenny, uh, both films which are not traditionally biopics. So they do go in sort of order the way uh, uh, ours does, but um, they, they dealt with minutia. They dealt with the human aspect of who these people were. So I loved I loved those films of Bob yeah. Fosse. I loved the poetry in those films, and I loved the fact that, I mean, Bob Fosse's, you know, Lenny is inside of all that jazz, and all that jazz is about himself, right. you know. But I tried to do the same thing in the sense that that's what inspired me with, for instance, Raging Bull, and one of the, the to me, an extraordinary movie. I watched it. 50 times yeah. and the thing about that film is that doesn't try to explain to you why Jake LaMotta is the raging bull mm -hmm. it doesn't show you him getting beat up in a playground as a young kid it doesn't start with him as a little boy who's determined to become the champion of the world it starts with him having a fight with his wife throwing her stake through the thing and yelling at the neighbor next mm -hmm. door I, what I learned is that go for the go for the truth, and the truth being the reality of a scene just and do what you believe you have to do yeah uh, that you think you can do, that you want to do, and and go that way with it, and and uh, that's what I attempted. Mm -hmm. And the same thing goes for I'm a huge fan of Mike Nichols' movies, and when you know 
I think Tom and Lizzie are amazing together. Elizabeth is mm-hmm. phenomenal in the movie, and and I love the fight scenes in the movie between the two of them. And you know, I watched Virginia Woolf many times because that's just such a beautifully orchestrated. Sure. And I'm not suggesting I'm any of those filmmakers, but um, those are the kinds of mm-hmm. films that this is. And you have to know those sort of films or know that they're you're, that those kind of films exist to in my opinion, sort of really appreciate Mm -hmm. what we were trying to do. I Saw the Light out now in limited release, including opening here in Chicago this weekend. Mark Abraham, Tom Hiddleston, this was a real treat. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you you so much, Adam. Thank you. Cheers, man.